0: This is Positive Parenting, parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brat. Hello
1: and welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brat, the founder of MrDad.com. According to a study of over 10,000 mothers in 17 countries, the number one worry that plagues moms worldwide is the fear of not being good enough. 8 out of 10 mothers report feeling plagued by self-doubt. To help us figure out what all this means, we're going to be talking with Catherine Winch, who's the CEO of the Mom Complex, and she's the one who conducted that study, and she's leading a movement to help improve the mental well-being of mothers. And the way she's done that is to create a sort of blueprint for forming reasonable expectations and accepting ourselves as we are. Although she's talking to women and moms, pretty much any person, mom or dad, is going to find our conversation enlightening and encouraging. We're going to be talking about things like you don't have to do it all to have it all. The important thing, and this I think is really important, choose which battles to lose as opposed to only which ones to win. Teaching that negative voice in your head some manners, how to believe in yourself and then stand up for yourself. Learning the difference between struggling and suffering. Being a mother is a struggle, but it doesn't have to be a suffering and how to get yourself on your calendar during those crazy times of the year or just regular old times of the year. Today's show is sponsored by Navy Federal Credit Union, which has been proudly serving the Armed Forces, veterans, and their families for over 80 years. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or the Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you, too. Federally insured by NCUA. I'm Armin Brunt. We'll start talking about how to slay those mothering dragons when Positive Parenting continues right after this.
2: Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services.
1: Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armand Braat, and my guest for this part of today's show is Catherine Winch, who is the author of Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want. Catherine, thanks for joining us.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: That's a pretty bold title, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back. So. <laughs> But the, I guess the, the slay like a mother, you're talking about slaying dragons, which we're going to get into as the book goes on. It's one of the, the metaphors that you use so nicely in the book. Um, g- give us a, an overview of the idea here, which I think is it came out of a, a study that you did that found that one of the biggest complaints that mothers have, is that, or the biggest worries that they have, is that they won't be able to be good enough.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a a researcher by trade, and I study self-doubt, particularly in mothers, and several years ago had the opportunity to study mothers in 17 countries around the world and found that 8 out of 10 women report struggling with frequent or constant self-doubt. And this really resonated with me because it's how I lived my own life, unfortunately, for 20 years, battling what I refer to as my dragon of self-doubt. And no matter what I accomplished, never feeling good enough, smart enough, thin enough. And it really wore me down. But learning that other women were struggling with self-doubt as, uh, as well was really the catalyst that set me free to slay this dragon of self-doubt and find some inner peace.
1: Well, I know that you study mothers, but is this something that that you think that fathers struggle with as well?
2: I d- I do, and I think that there are a lot of things that fathers can learn from "Slay Like a Mother" and take away. Um, if if you suffer from self doubt, this book is, is perfect for you, whether you're a mother or not. It's mm-hmm. really about the human condition of self doubt and and how we concern can turn self-doubt into self-compassion. Yeah. And, but my research does show that the frequency and intensity of self-doubt and feeling like pe- that you're less than is more acute in women. And I'll give you a, a quick example that I talk about in the book, and that is when I study the negative self-talk Mm-hmm. Um, what I find with women is the negative self talk tends to be very cruel and harsh, very cruel. Where with men, well, look, g- give, give us an example to...
1: of what cruel sounds like.
2: Oh, um, you're fat, you're ugly, and it's a miracle your husband loves you. Is what a woman told me recently. <laughs> oh, that's pretty. Harsh. Um, a woman in a workshop recently stood up and said the last terrible thing that she said to herself was that she was an idiot and everybody knew it, and she happened to be a lawyer by the way. And, um, and so those are examples of cruel, yeah. where more often, and this does happen for some men who have self-doubt, but if you don't have self-doubt, then you may have a negative voice in your head. But for a lot of men, it tends to be critical instead of cruel. So for example, you really should have worked out at the gym this morning, you know, you got to do better. So it's critical. It's critiquing your actions, but it's not cutting you down. It's not cruel.
1: Huh, that's interesting. So it seems like it's more about what you've done as opposed to who you are.
2: Yes, I I would say that like for a man, yes. And and again, this is I'm, I'm hmm. generalizing, but my no, research course, shows course. that yeah. men men would absolutely be critical of their action, but not who they are at their at their core, which hmm. is essentially the difference between guilt and shame. So yeah. a man might feel guilty about not working out, but a woman would feel shameful for it. And um, it's really a, a, a dark and hard place to be when you're saying to yourself all day that you're fat and ugly and it's a miracle you're right. ugly. You. That's, a, and that's I, a rough way to start the day.
1: It's a horrible way to start the day. And I would imagine that, that can, that's, ends up becoming a tough way to end the day as well. But I, yes. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned this briefly there, just for a second, that that self-doubt is a universal thing, and you're saying that you you studied self-doubt. Do you find that mothers have more self-doubts than non-mothers? I mean, is there something about having kids that really taps into that?
2: Well, what happens is, according to my research, 75% of the time, a woman's self-doubt is born during or before adolescence. So most likely their teenage years' self-esteem took a hit. And then if it's left left unaddressed and you feel less than, you know, not pretty enough, thin enough, whatever it is, enough, then what happens is when you become a mother, you're just giving yourself a hundred new reasons to feel like you're falling short because you're not responsible for other human beings. And this is where dads come into the equations and suffer, too, of maybe not feeling like you're home enough or you're doing enough. Mm -hmm. Um, We show a spike in that when children are born, especially with mothers, and then also, uh, maybe not surprisingly, when we have teenagers and life starts getting hard again, um, a lot of that self-doubt creeps back up, and even when parents become empty nesters can be another trigger for self-doubt.
1: I'm curious if you go further, and I know you talk about this in the book, but just generally speaking, in looking at the the ramifications of this, because I think that A lot of people say, oh, I'm an idiot, and they don't really necessarily mean that, and they may be able to turn that into some sort of a catalyst for change. So what what does this self-doubt, what sorts of effects does it have on people?
2: In the case of a a mother, very often the effect is giving all of her time away to other human beings and never keeping that time for herself. So what I tell mothers is that if you don't have enough me time in your life, yourself on your calendar, then it it means that at your core, you believe that other people deserve your time more than you do. And again, that's another painful place to operate your life from, and so it causes a lot of women to overachieve, to to do too much, to volunteer for too much, because they're so desperately trying to be seen as a certain way in other people's eyes, because they don't have that belief inside of them, which was my own life. You know, it's mm-hmm. when you don't feel good enough on the inside. You work overtime to be seen as more than enough on the outside, and at some point, you know, it just practically kills you.
1: So what does success look like then? I mean, what are they looking for? Are they looking for somebody to say, wow, you are a great mom, or for the kids to say, mom, you're great, which is probably not going to happen?
2: I will tell you that a mother is thanked once on average every 20 days. (laughs) It's Uh a, a hard thing to come by, but... Yeah, I mean, it's what they really want is to feel like they are good enough for the job that they're doing, whether it's at work or it's at home or as a wife. And so, yeah, when you're not getting that love on the inside, you have to seek it externally. So, yes, what they're seeking is a spouse to say they're beautiful, a child to say they're really caring, a boss to say they're great because they're not telling themselves that. Mm -hmm. And so it has to come from the outside, but what they will learn is what I learned is I climbed to the top of a pretty big pile of praise, you know, people saying nice things about me because I was successful, but then I realized that that wasn't enough, that I had to find it on the inside.
1: So is there such a thing as enough?
2: yes i I do i uh, you know, I always say, especially when it comes to women, you know everybody's always like, "Can women have it all?" And my belief is that y- you can have it all, um but it has to be your own all, and that's what mm-hmm. creates the enough. So in other words, in my previous career, when I was chasing titles and trophies like they were trading cards. Um, that's, that was where my self-worth was coming from. And, um, and, and when I stopped doing that and I said, you know what, success for me is a small company and not a big company and success is more time off rather than more money. And, um, when I set those parameters, I do finally feel like I can be enough because it's my own definition of what is enough. You
1: know, we only have just half a minute left before we have to take a quick break, but, Tell us about what dragons are and where they come from, and then we'll, we'll get into that in more detail, but just a, a quick glimpse.
2: Yeah, I, I describe dragons and Play Like a Mother as your greatest worries gone wild, <laughs> and if they're left unsupervised and unaddressed, they create this exaggerated and distorted view of reality, one in which you suck and everybody else is amazing, but... I'm living proof that the dragons can be slayed.
1: <laughs> and, and how much of that would you blame on social media where that is the prevailing view that everybody has of everybody else, which is, wow, their life is so magical and all of their pictures are in focus and their eyes are never closed and they're beautiful. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. You know,
2: yeah. I think social media definitely plays obviously a bigger role than it ever has before in self doubt and making us feel terrible. But I think you have to learn that that's everyone's highlight reel, and the biggest mistake we can make is to to compare our outtakes and bad pictures to everyone else's highlight reel. When you know and recognize that it's everybody at their best, it puts less pressure on you to be better.
1: Talking with Catherine Winch, and it's W I N T S C H, by the way, who's the author of Slay Like a Mother and we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to keep talking with Catherine, and we'll get into exactly how to slay those dragons. I'm Armin Brot You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brot If you're just joining us, talking with Catherine Winch, who's the author of Slay Like a Mother, How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want. So, we've identified what our dragons are, hopefully. And, well, actually, you know what? Let's take a step back from that. How do you tell people, the, the mothers that you work with, the mothers you talk with, and the dads who are listening and, and figuring out a way to apply this to themselves, how do you determine what your dragon is? Because I think a lot of us just, it's a forest for the trees kind of thing. You just don't see that there may be a, a some big creature with wings there instead of just <laughs> a... A couple of footprints.
2: <laughs> That's funny. So um, I have a little litmus test. I usually ask people and would invite the the, the listeners to play along. Of uh, three signs that you might be living with a dragon of self doubt. The first sign is that you yell at yourself all day long, as we talked about earlier, um, with incredibly negative self talk that you would never say out loud to a friend, but you um, you know bully yourself all day. Starting to pay attention to that voice. Is really important so that it's not just ruling your life. The second sign that you have a dragon of self doubt is that you hide your true feelings behind a mask. You get back from a, a young va- a vacation with two young kids, somebody asks how it was, you say it was awesome, but on the inside you think it's terrible, there was sand everywhere, kids cried all the time. And so you're kind of living a double life, I talk about. And then finally, we talked about this briefly earlier, but you just can't say no. If you're saying yes to everything and everybody in your life, it's not because you have a hard time saying no to other people. It's because you have a hard time saying yes to yourself. And those are those are signs that something's ruling your life other than yourself.
1: I hope this doesn't sound silly, but uh, people generally know other people. And even though we talked a little bit about the the influence of social media, we talk to our friends, and and hopefully you've got close enough friends who will tell you this just sucks, or I had this horrible experience, or it was a complete failure, or whatever. We theoretically know the truth about other people's lives, so why do we have this this fixation on that we're not good enough? I mean, we saw our mothers and our our fathers, and we we can look back, and, and you know, while we're trying to avoid becoming them. We can see where they failed and where they succeeded.
2: Yeah, I think one of the reasons we struggle so much with self doubt is that it's never been role modeled for us. So while we may know that other people have trials and tribulations, you know, maybe you didn't see your mother struggling and saying that she was a hard time. You know, maybe all the mothers on the block or the fathers always seem so, you know, happy and put together. And that's where we start making assumptions. We assume that. Because somebody does something well in one area of their life, they're perfect at every single thing else that they do. So we tend to exaggerate. But I think we have to be better as parents of role modeling vulnerability and self-doubt. And, um, you know, since I've studied this subject, I think I've been a better mother of raising my children to embrace their own self-doubt and not having to parade around as they're perfect. So I think a lot of this starts in the home. Of breaking these habits.
1: Yeah, do you think there's a hereditary component here that because I'm sure as, as you were doing your research you probably came across some women who didn't have any self-doubt at all and I'm wondering if or they had less wondering if their children tended to be less self-doubting than women who mm-hmm. were doubting mm-hmm. themselves.
2: Yeah, I would say the environment plays a lot into someone's self-doubt and what I've seen that if you grew up in a household that. that rewarded perfectionist tendencies, then your child is likely to pick up and carry on those tendencies, which does cause people to wear a mask. If you feel like you have to be perfect around oh, yeah. your parents all the time, um, you'll begin to hide this dragon and not want to talk about it. And dragons of self-doubt just thrive in silence and avoidance. So I would say it's maybe less likely to be hereditary and more likely to be something that is, you know, within the household and Mm -hmm. attitudes and behaviors that are fostered.
1: All right. So let's talk about some dragon slaying techniques. How do you, hopefully somebody will have listened to this and they maybe picked up the book and they'll get a little bit more details about how to pinpoint exactly what their particular dragon is. How do you begin to work on that and start whittling away a little bit? It's probably never going to go away completely and it wouldn't be a good idea if it did i guess because otherwise we would never strive to be better which is probably a good thing but how yeah. do you how do you begin yeah. to start chipping away at this
2: I tell people to really start to pay attention to the the last mean thing that you said to yourself. And, you know, even at my therapist taught me, like, write it down in your journal. You really have to start to acknowledge the way that you're speaking to yourself. And then once you hear the voice and you hear it attacking you, you, know, you can teach the mean voice in your head some manners. I'll give you an example of something that happened to me the other day. I was giving a big speech about the book couple hundred people in the room. I was showing a video that I happened to be in and my face came up on the screen and the voice inside me said, God Catherine, you look awful in that video. And it was just instinctive. Like, you look terrible. And I heard it, first of all, which was a big step. But then second of all, I said I said to myself, you know what? That video is not I don't look great in that video, but some days I do. Some days I have good moments. And so how would you address That negative self-talk towards a friend. If your friend said I look terrible in a video, you would, you know, say loving and kind things to them. So you can train that voice in your head, A, so that you can hear it, but B, to be nicer to you um, the way you would console a friend, like I said – And then another tip I give um, parents is a lot of our mask wearing ways happen because we want to try to be perfect. But I always encourage parents, decide what battles that you're going to lose. Maybe you're going to win dinner time and taking extra time off work and your relationship with your spouse, whatever your three things that you want to win. But what are you going to lose? So for example. My, I have two children in two different schools. My husband is mainly involved at my son's school, and I'm mainly involved at my daughter's school. So I have decided to lose the battle of being seen as a great mom at my son's school. I've decided to lose that, and I'm okay with that. So when I go to his school and I'm uncomfortable because I don't know as many people and I'm likely to yell at myself for that, I say, no, I decided that I was going to lose this. Hmm. And it's really liberating and can take a lot of pressure off you.
1: That is really interesting. I mean, how I think we don't think in terms of allowing yourself to lose something and getting comfortable with it.
2: Yeah, because you can't win it all. And when you, when you create all activities in your life, you consider them equal, you're just going to fail because they can't all get the same time. And uh, one final tip I'll share on this note of time mm-hmm. is, you know, moms make no time for themselves. A lot of fathers too. And the advice I give is, Fast forward on your calendar six weeks. Six weeks from now, your calendar is not as packed as it is today, and go ahead and start setting reoccurring meetings that will pop up on your calendar You know, every Tuesday at lunchtime, every Thursday at dinner, whatever it is, for yoga, for meditation, for time with friends, for you time. And when the future becomes the present, six weeks from now, you'll already have you on your calendar and guess what all the other dentist appointments and meetings and crap that you have to get done fits in and around that me time but you're already built into your life
1: do you think that these things will actually help you become a better parent or is your parenting skill part of this whole thing not not part of the discussion
2: I would say just personally it's made me a better parent. A, I'm less anxious and angry all the time because I actually love myself and so I think I yell at my children less and um and, and I'm a better person to be around because I'm not, um, you know, fraught with anxiety all the time. But I also think that it makes people better parents because I think I'm raising my children in an environment, in a household that encourages them to be honest about their failures, talk about the bad parts of their day, admit Mm. when they feel less than. And I think in this society, especially for children, that's more important now than ever before.
1: To be able to admit that they're not feeling yeah. good that they're yeah
2: the hard part so my kids right now they happen to be 10 and 12 and every night before we go to bed we each share our peak and our pit of the day so the best part and the worst part of our day and what that teaches my children is that every day has a bad part every day has a low today did tomorrow will and it's important for them to hear that their mother has lows but it's also important for them to say their lows out loud so they don't feel like they have to hide them because they may feel like they have to hide them on social media or in front of friends. But at home, we have to be able to talk about the hard parts of life. And a lot of um, my books, Say Like a Mother, equips parents. The last chapter is called Raising Dragon Slayers. It equips parents to help raise our children to be free from these dragons that so many of us suffer from.
1: Catherine Winch, and again it's W I N T S C H, is the author of Slay Like a Mother How to Destroy What's Holding You Back So You Can Live the Life You Want. Catherine, great to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hey there, welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for an Ask Mr. Dad segment. Dear Mr. Dad, in one of your columns a while ago, you talked about free speech and the importance of listening to others. I've been having a lot of disagreements lately with my daughter, a college freshman, who demands that I listen respectfully to everything she says, but interrupts and completely dismisses anything I say that she disagrees with. And she frequently accuses me of being racist or homophobic or something else. I want my daughter to feel comfortable standing up for her views, but how can I teach her to be more respectful of mine and others? You've hit upon what I see as one of the biggest challenges we as a society are facing today. The unfortunate tendency of a lot of people to demand that others respect their views, but feel entitled to lash out or shut down anyone who disagrees. At the core of the problem is a fundamental misunderstanding of what free speech in our Constitution's First Amendment, which guarantees it, is and what it's not. Let's start there. The First Amendment, among other things, clearly states that Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. That's pretty broad, and deliberately so, and the Supreme Court has made it very clear that nearly any kind of speech, especially what we often think of as hate speech, is protected unless it specifically incites violence or illegal acts. In other words, it's precisely the things that we don't want to hear that are protected. College campuses used to be places where students could be exposed to a variety of points of view, where they honed their arguments, and at least occasionally where they learned something that changed their thinking. Sadly, those days are gone. One recent study of faculty in economics, history, journalism, communications, law, and psychology at 40 leading universities around the country found that registered Democrats outnumber registered Republicans by a ratio of 11.5 to 1. As a result, instead of being places where students and faculty can enjoy freedom of speech, college campuses have become places where students and faculty now enjoy freedom from speech. And rather than engage in civil discussions, too many people rush to label anyone they disagree with as racist, homophobic, xenophobic, transphobic, or any other discussion-stopping smear they can come up with. Today, nearly 90% of American colleges maintain policies that restrict, or too easily could restrict, student and faculty expression, according to the Foundation for Individual Rights Education at thefire.org. It's no surprise, then, that speakers and guest lecturers who express conservative views are routinely shouted down, intimidated by students and faculty who don't agree with them, or are simply disinvited. A recent study by a UCLA professor found that 62% of Democrats and 39% of Republicans on campuses believe that this type of behavior is okay. Oh, and that's just the beginning. In the same study, one in five college students say that it's acceptable to use violence to silence a speaker. Think about that. These students believe that they have the right to stand up for what they believe in, even if it involves hurting others, but that those whose views they disagree with don't enjoy the same right. Unfortunately, that same free speech for me but not for thee" attitude is shared by many non-students as well. In a 2015 Pew Research study, 40% of millennials say that it's okay to limit offensive speech. As a father and an American, I find this troubling, to say the least. The big question is, who gets to define what's offensive? Facebook and Twitter, for example, routinely shut down anti-Islamic social media accounts, but they rarely take action against accounts that are openly anti-Semitic or call for the destruction of Israel. Here's my bottom line. While it's important to encourage young people to think critically and express their opinions, it's just as important to encourage them to listen attentively and respect other people's opinions, especially the ones they disagree with. If their or your response to an opposing view is to try to shut it down or attack the person expressing it, they, or you, aren't mature enough to express their views, and they have no right to expect anyone else to listen to them. If you've got a comment or a suggestion for us here at Positive Parenting, please do send it over. We love to hear from listeners. You can do that through our website, MrDad.com. We'll be back next week with another show for you. Hey, but you know, don't go yet because there's a lot more of this Positive Parenting show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin brought after
0: this, from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: I have an asthma attack. I feel scared. It's like tiny nails in the air poke my lungs. I start to cough. Sometimes my parents have to take me to the hospital.
0: Today, one out of 13 children suffer from some form of asthma, accounting for nearly one-third of all emergency room
1: visits. I feel like I'm choking. It's kind of like an elephant is... On my chest, a little whistle sound comes out when I breathe.
0: But while your child may suffer from asthma, asthma doesn't have to make your child suffer. There are simple ways you can prevent your child's next attack. To learn more, call one no attacks That's one 662 8822 Log on to www.noattacks.org or call your doctor. Because even one attack is one too many.
2: I feel like a fish with no water.
0: Brought to you by the EPA, the Ad Council, and this station. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network.
1: Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Thanks for staying with us. A clinical social worker, parent, coach, and mother of two, Carla Nomberg was having a particularly grueling evening with her daughters when she found herself Googling how to stop yelling at my kids. That night started her on a journey to figure out how to stay patient in the midst of kid chaos. The result is a new book that we're going to be talking about with Carla Nomberg herself. And in this part of the show, we're going to be talking about the program that she's put together that's going to help us learn how to manage triggers, stop parental meltdowns, and become a calmer and happier parent with, and this is important, calmer, happier kids, whether they're toddlers or teens. We're going to be talking about things like identifying your triggers, the first step the first step has to be to understand what sets you off, puts you on edge, and makes your buttons more sensitive and pushable by your kids. And then the next step is to make your buttons as push-proof as possible. So we're going to talk about strategies like getting more sleep or single-tasking or accepting support, which is really, really hard. And what's even harder, not beating yourself up. I'm Armin Brock. We'll start talking about how to stop losing your stuff with your kids when Positive Parenting continues right after this. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brad, and my guest for this part of today's show is Carla Nomberg, who's the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. And just so you know, the word stuff is spelled S-H blank, blank, and you can figure that one out for yourself. Carla, thanks for joining us.
3: Glad to be here.
1: So that's a pretty big claim there, isn't it? how to stop losing it with your kids. I mean, I think all of us at at one point or other have lost it completely or at least partially. How do you propose to do that?
3: Yeah, you're right. It is a huge claim uh, for any book. And right from the outset, I should say I'm not promising that uh, any parent who reads this book will never lose their temper with their kids again. I mean, I wrote the book, and I still lose it sometimes. But this book is really for parents who feel like their tempers have gotten out of control that they're um, shouting or screaming or slamming doors or yelling at their kids more often than they'd like to. And they want to change that dynamic. And so what I can say is that the book will help you become a calmer, more present, more responsive, as opposed to reactive parent. Um, But I'm not promising, you know, you're going to turn into the Dolly Mama or something. Uh, We all still lose it with our kids sometimes. And that's okay. That's really... A part of the very typical parent-child dynamic, it's when our tempers become the sort of predominant um, way of interacting with our kids that we really want to start changing things. And that's what I talk about in the book.
1: Let's go back just a little bit. I'm curious what your take is on why it is that we lose our temper with our kids or, or have these meltdowns with our kids. We don't do that generally with other adults. We don't do it with the people that we work with in the office. Uh, We may get a little heated sometimes, but we generally are able to keep it together. But we we somehow just let loose sometimes with our kids. Why do we do that?
3: This is a great question. And what I would say is that, um, first, we do it because, quite honestly, we can. You know, if you go to work and lose it with your boss you're going to get fired or at least put on some kind of, you know, behavioral plan. Um, And if you do it with your spouse too many times, you know, they'll bring it right back at you, and eventually your relationship might start to fall apart. But with our children, you know, they'll just take it and take it because they're so desperate for a connection with their parents that um, they will stick around for it partially because they want that connection and partially because until they get older and have the car keys, They don't have a whole lot of choice. But, you know, the other question is what's driving us to have these sort of temper tantrums, these outbursts with our children? And that's a little more complicated, and that's what I go into the book. And it's really a combination of, A, not taking care of ourselves. Um, You know, we parents especially, well, really all of us, whether you're working outside the home or not, We're busy and stressed. We're maxed out by everything on our to-do list. We're flooded with information and advice and suggestions about all the ways we should be parenting better, and that's stressful. And then this constant flow of news, and let's be honest, the news lately is really stressful and anxiety-provoking, along with social media, which is leading us to believe that every other parent is parenting better than we are. All of this raises our stress levels and anxiety. And the way I talk about it in the book is that when we don't take care of ourselves and when we're dealing with a lot of stressors, our buttons, you know, if we imagine ourselves having these buttons, uh, which I kind of talk about in terms of our uh, nervous system and our um, tendency to react to situations, our buttons become big and bright and red and glowing and super sensitive And as anybody who's ever been in an elevator with a kid knows, what does a kid do when they see a button? They push it, and they push it again, and they keep on pushing it. So when we're not taking care of ourselves and when we're overloaded, we become really sensitive to whatever our kids show up with, Mm -hmm. and then we lose it.
1: Uh, What's the process? Excuse me. We'll talk about that in in some detail here. But what, what does the process look like overall to getting some sort of control over ourselves so we don't do this quite so often?
3: Yeah. So the first step is um, understanding that this is not a matter of willpower. You can't just decide to sort of white-knuckle your way through this and, you know, decide you're not going to lose your temper and then just do that. That doesn't work for pretty much anyone. So the first thing is to really accept that this is part of being a human being. This is part of being a parent, and it doesn't make you a bad parent. It's just part of the deal. From there, I work with parents around noticing what are your triggers, What are the things in your life, and they may have absolutely nothing to do with your kids, that set you off, that make you far more likely um, to lose your temper? And that can be anything from sleep deprivation, and exhaustion is a pretty common one, to dealing with a challenging family situation, especially for those of us in the sandwich generation where we're taking care of kids and elderly adults, elderly relatives, Um, It could be a situation going on at work. It could be that you're dealing with chronic pain, um, that you're stressed about finances. Any of these things uh, can really trigger us and make it far more likely that we're going to lose it when our kids come along with their fingers sticking out looking for some button to push. Once we get a handle on our triggers, you know, if you can do something about it, that's great. If you can get some space from, you know, that mom you always see in the drop-off line or the colleague at work who's driving you nuts you can get some space from that trigger. You should do that. But in a lot of cases, we can't. And so from there, it's starting to realize how can we take care of ourselves to counteract, you know, the stressors, to reduce the stress, to give ourselves more energy, more calm, more patience. And I go through a lot of strategies for taking care of ourselves. Um, well, why don't, wait, then, so why don't I stop yeah. you there?
1: Let's go into a couple of those strategies. Give us some some hints of what we can do to, to implement some of these things.
3: So a lot of what I talk about in the book your listeners have heard before. They know how important it is to get sleep. They know how important it is to exercise, things like that. But there is one strategy that I bet folks aren't thinking about. And I call it single tasking or doing just one thing at a time. Because what research has found and what I've certainly found in my own life is that multitasking is a major trigger for most folks. Trying to do more than one thing at a time, especially if one of those things is our kids, you know, paying attention to them, increases our stress and makes it far more likely we're going to lose our tempers. And the really classic example that I've certainly been in and I think any parent has is, you know, it's the evening. So it's the end of a long day. We're all tired. We, the parent, are trying to get dinner on the table. So we're standing over the stove, maybe stirring the noodles. And then our phone is dinging with, you know, text messages or emails or news updates And we're sort of looking at that. And then we've got one kid over here maybe asking for help with spelling words. Maybe we've got another kid in the bathroom yelling that they need help from there. And we're trying to manage all of this. And then at some point, you know, the kids get in a fight or we spill the noodles or something happens and we just lose it. And a lot of, you know, a lot of times that's what happens. I mean, that is sort of the immediate thing that causes us to yell at our kids. And so when we can slow down as often as possible and focus on just one thing at a time, that will decrease our stress and anxiety to the point where we can respond in a more thoughtful way to our children instead of snapping at them.
1: And you talk about how doing less, I mean, that's exactly a little going a little bit deeper into what you're saying about having so many different things going on, but trying to delegate or to just step back from some things, And which... Is As you mentioned, for those of us who are in, in the sandwich generation and we've got the additional burden of all the things that go along with caring for parents, How how do you do that?
3: Yeah, that's a hard one, and I think that there are a few different strategies. First of all is realizing that, you know, for many of us, especially those folks who had children later in life, which is more and more common— we're used to being super high functioning, productive folks. You know, we went off into the workforce and we got stuff done and children and family members make demands on us that are really different from what happens at work. And they're in some ways harder and more stressful. And in some ways, you know, a source of great joy and meaning, meaning, but still hard and stressful. And so what I encourage folks to do is remember that while we may be able to do it all, we can't do it all right now. And so, you know, these um, maybe volunteer opportunities or extra work opportunities or things you'd like to get done but maybe aren't crucial. Maybe those aren't the things you can have in your life right now while your child is in this particular stage or your parent is needing these particular, you know, this particular help from you. And so you need to put these things off for maybe it's a few weeks, maybe it's a few months, maybe it's a couple years and know that when you get past this stage of your life, you can come back to it. And that's, you know, that's a hard thing to um, do, especially if some of the things you have to give up, you really care about. Mm -hmm. And so it's about paying attention to and just acknowledging, this is what I can do right now. And look, if, if you're talking about something that really is a source of, I don't know, I guess nourishment, something that sort of makes you feel better, calms you down, energizes you, and it's worth it, then hang on to that. You know, I have a friend that once a week he drives half an hour each way to go swing on a trapeze. I can't imagine anything (laughs) less fun than that. But for him, this is important. I mean, this is part of his self-care, and so he does it. For me, I have stepped away from some volunteer opportunities now that I plan to come back to later when I have more time on my hands.
1: Talking with Carla Nomburg was the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to a cal- Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will keep talking to Carla about stuff and how not to lose it and a little bit more in detail about how to offload some of that stuff. I'm Armin Braun. You're listening to Positive Parenting. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brod. If you're just joining us, talking with Carla Nomberg, who's the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids, and again, stuff is spelled S H dot dot dot. Oh, you can figure that one out. I, I want to go back a little bit before we, we move on to talking about offloading some things and and cutting back. And and I was listening to you and and noticing that all the things that you suggested cutting back on were things that we do that have to do with us. And I'm wondering how you feel about cutting back on some of the things that the kids are doing, because that can be tremendously time consuming, particularly if you've got three different kids who've got three different after school activities who are heading off in different directions, and, and somebody's got violin lessons, and, and soccer, and play practice. And, you know, can we, without feeling horribly guilty, cut back on some of the stuff we're doing for other people instead of things that we're doing for ourselves?
3: Absolutely, and I'm so glad you brought that up. Um, I really encourage parents to limit their kids' after school activities to two at any given time. And a great way to think about it is the child gets to choose one, and the parent gets to choose one. So, my daughters are going to be in swim lessons until they're strong enough swimmers because that's what I choose, and they can choose the other one. And there are a few reasons for this. One is our own sanity, right? You know, as you mentioned, it's too much driving all these kids around, having to stay on top of these schedules, and then invariably for any activity you choose, you know, there's the recital or the championship game or whatever it is. It's not just that once a week thing. The other reason to cut back is it'll save you some money, right? And the other reason is that kids really need unstructured time. They need time to be bored. They need time to play on their own or read a book or wander around the yard and in that time they learn a lot about themselves and what they enjoy doing and what they don't and how to deal with the frustration that comes from being a little bored or not having someone else tell you what to do so it's really important for their growth and development to have that unstructured time so I think parents can feel really good about not having their child signed up for a million after-school activities and what I would say is that for parents who are saying you know what I've given up my volunteer opportunities. i stepped back from a ton of things. I've got my kids only in one or two activities, and I am still overwhelmed. What I would say is, yes, yes, that is true, and that is real, and this is when we really need to reach out to our support networks. And I go a lot about – I write a lot about that in the book, the different kinds of support networks and how to access them and how to set up carpools and why that's important and why you shouldn't feel guilty about doing that um, because – You know, we all sort of jokingly say it takes a village, but that's as true as ever. It is not possible to raise your children alone without support and not lose your temper with them. That's just not not the human
2: way.
1: Take us back a little bit to your own personal journey. You've got a chapter in there about how you stopped losing your stuff. What did your life look like before you figured some of this stuff out?
3: Yeah, so uh, soon after my daughters were born, I came down with postpartum anxiety, and I'm a clinical social worker, so you'd think I would be able to diagnose this in myself, but I totally missed it, and what many people don't realize is that irritability is a symptom of anxiety, and I would say that anxiety is incredibly common in the parenting culture these days, and approximately somewhere around 20% of new mothers develop some kind of anxiety after their child is born, so it's super common. And my anxiety was also making it hard for me to sleep. So the combination of the irritability that was sort of a direct result of my anxiety and also just the crankiness that comes with being chronically tired. I was losing my temper with my children all the time. I mean, I was yelling at them on a daily basis. And I would say there are a few things that feel worse than yelling at a toddler. I mean, I felt incredibly guilty and ashamed of this. And so it was really a journey for me, um, figuring out how to sleep again, getting treatment for my anxiety, and learning, really learning about who I was now as a mother and how I was a different person than I was before I had kids. And so, you know, I wanted the quick fix. I I tell a story in the book about sitting down one night. It had been a really hard night, so I put the girls in front of a Daniel Tiger episode, and here I was. I had a Ph.D. in clinical social work, so I was supposed to be the expert on this. And I literally sat down on my computer and Googled, how do I stop yelling at my kids? And that was really the beginning of this journey for me. And what I can say is I didn't find the answer on Google. <laughs> Unfortunately, it was it was a long journey.
1: And nobody finds answers to questions like that on Google anyway, right?
3: No, I wish we could. I really wish we could.
1: So what did you find?
3: What I found was um, the first step for me was really figuring out about my sleep. Sleep is so foundational that... When we try to function without sleep, it's kind of like driving around in a car with a flat tire. Um, it's, you know, the, we may still be able to get to where we're going, but the journey is going to be a whole lot bumpier and a whole lot more painful. So the first step for me was getting my sleep under control. And then once that I was sleeping better on a regular basis, I had the energy to exercise, and I also had the energy to get myself back into therapy And working with a therapist around my anxiety was incredibly useful. And then once I started doing that, I was learning a whole lot about myself and what I needed to do to keep my buttons sort of smaller and dimmer and less pushable so that when my kids would come along, being unpredictable and inconsistent and needy and whiny as kids are, I wasn't, you know, my buttons weren't there ready to be pushed. So they were showing up with their fingers, but there wasn't a whole lot for them to push and I could stay calm. And And again, this is not 100% of the time, but it's more often than not now that I am not losing my temper with them, whereas before I would have. And so what I know now is that this is an ongoing process. It wasn't like I checked those boxes and fixed the problem. I get in bed at 9.30 every night. I exercise every single day now. I take time alone um, to be with myself and sort of get some quiet time away from people. And I've realized that doing things like this, focusing on one thing at a time, um, for example, so when I'm making dinner, if my daughters, who are now 11 and almost 11 and nine years old, come to me and say, Mommy, I need help with this, a few years ago, I would have said, Sure, I'll help you right now, even though I'm like cutting cucumbers or whatever. And now I'll say, You know what? I'm making dinner, and so I can help you in a couple minutes when I'm done making dinner. And so all of these things combined, knowing that at any moment I do better if I slow down and just focus, Mm -hmm. knowing that I need sleep and exercise and time alone and time with friends, all of this makes it far more likely that when these heated moments come, I'm less likely to lose it with my children.
1: Well, it also helps them to understand that they don't have the right or the need to take you away from whatever it is you're doing all the time. and can probably lead to them being able to solve some of their problems on their own, which Absolutely. is a, a hidden I mean, benefit a there. a beautiful
3: yeah. side effect that when I say, hey, I'll help you in five minutes, you know, at least half the time they go off and figure it out on their own. Whereas if I had said to them, can you figure that out on your own? You know, we get into a power struggle about, no, they can't. Can you help me, mommy, and things like that.
1: Right. And that's, yeah, the, the, the lesson that you can do it yourself is a tremendously important one, I think, especially these days when parents are so concerned about their kids' happiness that they jump in and they do their kids' homework and they do everything else for them, which is just it's creating problems for the kids. It's creating problems for us, as we've been talking about.
3: You just said something really important there. You said that um, we parents are so concerned about our children's happiness, and I can certainly relate to that, but what I would also say is it is not our job to make sure our kids are happy. It is, and this is, once we parents realize this, it's a really uh, powerful way to reduce our own stress. Our job is to do the best we can to help our kids learn to tolerate a variety of emotions, including the unpleasant ones. And this is hard because for most of us, we can't tolerate our own unpleasant emotions. But my job isn't to make my kids happy. My job is to keep them safe it's to be a source of support for them when they're having difficult times, um, and it's to help them identify and understand the emotions they're experiencing and knowing that no matter how good or bad that it's going to pass and another one will come up. And once we parents can let go of this idea that we have to make sure our kids are happy, parenting actually becomes a little easier.
1: And we only have just a minute left, but, what, but I want to get to this. What do you do when you do lose your stuff I mean, relative to yourself and relative to the, the kid whose day you've, you've upset by, by losing it in front of them?
3: Absolutely. So we all lose our tempers with our children. And I've got some strategies in the book for what to do when you get to that moment and you're like in the middle of it or you know what's about to happen and you want to stop it. So that's in the book, but let's talk about what you do afterwards. The first thing I would say is you need to get yourself calmed down. Don't do anything else. Don't try to reengage with your child until you yourself have calmed down. Because if you're still triggered and you go back to them and that interaction goes poorly, you are likely to lose it again. So I've got a whole lot of strategies in the book about how to calm yourself down. And a lot of it involves self-compassion. Please don't beat yourself up. We all do this. Parenting is hard. It's okay. Once you can get calmed down... You can actually go apologize to your child, and you can say something like, hey, I'm sorry I lost it with you. I got frustrated because, you know, you weren't putting your shoes on, and I was really frustrated because I asked a whole bunch of times, but I shouldn't have lost my temper with you. And then you can make a plan, you know, for the rest of the night, let's really try to be a team and work together. Um, You don't have to apologize for your feelings. No feeling is ever wrong. But what I do work with parents on and what I work on myself is apologizing for my behavior. Mm-hmm. And parents can absolutely do this without undermining the power differential or, you know, making it so their kids no longer respect them. In fact, your children will respect you more and feel more connected to you when you apologize. And you're modeling the behavior you would like them to demonstrate someday. Wouldn't it be great? If, you know, your kid could walk up to their sibling after a bad moment and say, I'm really sorry I threw that truck at you, <laughs> like, hmm. that would be amazing.
0: It would be.
3: And so yeah. we're, we're modeling the behavior we want to see, and we're taking an important step towards sort of repairing our relationship with our child.
1: Carla Nomberg's is the author of How to Stop Losing Your Stuff with Your Kids, A Practical Guide to Becoming a Calmer, Happier Parent. Carla, thanks for joining us. Great to have you.
3: It was a pleasure. Thank you.
1: And a special shout-out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They proudly serve the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families. Federally insured by NCUA